Hey, you kids, hush up. Can't you hear Marvin's own? Hello and welcome to Say It Loud. I am so excited about our guest today. Uh, his name is Horatio Sanchez. He is the president and CEO of Resiliency Incorporated, an agency leader in helping schools improve school climate, instruction, and discipline. Horatio is recognized as one of the nation's prominent experts on promoting student resiliency and applying brain science to improve school cultures. The Maladaptive Council Academy of Science recognizes him as a leading authority on emotional disorders and resiliency. He is a highly sought after speaker and has keynoted many national conferences. He has trained business leaders on the science of influencing people and the keys to success. Horatio has helped agencies learn the science of implementing organizational change he is a dynamic presenter who is known for making neuroscience understandable, humorous, and applicable. Horatio has been a teacher, administrator, clinician, mental health director, and consultant to the Department of Education in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and other states. His diverse education and background have helped him to merge research, science, and practice. Horatio sits on the True Health Initiative Council of Directors, a coalition of more than 250 world-renowned health experts committed to educating on proven principles of lifestyle as medicine. He has authored several articles and books on the topics of resiliency, closing the achievement gap, and applying neuroscience to improve educational practices and outcomes. He is the author of the best-selling book, The Education Revolution, which applies brain science to improve instruction, behaviors, and school climate. Hello and welcome to Say It Loud. How are you today, sir? I am excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm going to assume you're keeping yourself safe and busy in these uh, wild times. Um, I want to go ahead and ask... During these times, though, what is one of the most challenging things for you as you, uh, you're doing all this work with uh, schools and districts? What, what seems to be the challenge of 2020 for you right now? Um, in many ways, for me, life doesn't change. Um, circumstances around me can change, but pretty much my attitude and how I go about things stay the same. So circumstances, I don't really worry about too much. So the the things that I feel and I'm doing, I've always done the things that make sure I stay balanced and grounded and those continue and the circumstances change and we just plow through it. So I hear you have a new book scheduled for release uh, this upcoming spring titled The Poverty Problem. Uh, in this book, you make some eye-opening observations concerning poverty. 
Yes, it is. Tell me a little bit about that book. What's going? What should I? What should my readers expect from this? Well, um, one of the things that I'm going to state strongly, and I hope everybody hears it and and actually buys in, poverty is going to be the number one problem education will face for the next 45 years of our night, and nothing will be closer. And the reasons are that for the first time in history, poverty is dramatically altering the human brain. Let me, um, let me break that down as to what it's doing to the brain, and then also explain how we think it's come about. Um, if you think of our brain, we have evolved to what is called a top-down model. Top-down meaning the prefrontal cortex in the front of your brain exercises control over your primitive brain, and that helps us to be rational and thoughtful creatures. Well, the first thing they know is that poverty seems to cause a dramatic loss of gray matter, which helps the function of the region, and white matter, which helps the connection between the regions in the prefrontal cortex. That means we're reducing self-control, um, we're reducing executive function. It is decimating the right hemisphere, which manages language, and it is taking all the things that make us controlled beings and putting that into flux because of the loss of structure. Um, another area that is highly impacted is the amygdala, which is in charge of our emotions. And when the amygdala is actually altered in function, it makes us more apt to lose control can cause issues of aggression and mental health. And the last thing that is impacted, well, not the last thing, one of the last regions that is cheese impacted is um, the hippocampus. This is where learning begins. It's in charge of short-term memory. That means if you, you have this region impacted, all learning is compromised regardless of topic area. And those are three of the largest areas that have been impacted by poverty. So how did this come about and what has caused the change in poverty? Well, me and you are probably around the same age. And if you think about um, a bunch of folks that you grew up with, if you, if you grew up poor like I did, you'll find out that a lot of people my age, when they talk to people about being poor, I hear this statement a lot. I didn't know I was poor until I went off to college. And, and that's because the folks around them had the same economic situation. Um, they were unaware of it. it. It was just the thing. As long as they were being raised well, as long as people were taking pride, as long as they were striving for the future, it was not impacted. And you did not compare yourself with other people until you discovered later in life that, oh, other people had significantly more. The one significant change that seems to occur is that there is awareness of how poor you are based on technology. Even poor kids have cell phones. Even, even young kids have cell phones. And, and who do the kids love? They love the the stars, the athletic stars, the music stars, the actors, the actors, and they track their lives and they watch them and they know everything about them. 
and you can open your cell phone and take a tour of your favorite actors or music stars home and and you see you walk through their garage with 14 cars and you go through their 20 20 room mansion and you see their closet with 200 pairs of collector item nikes and you see their pool and you see the excess of the diamond collar for their dogs and what that causes is for the first time people start to feel less than and look around and feel less than and and the media is is feeding this because there there are places dedicated 24 7 to exposing people to it well one of the things they research showed was that your terrorist singlet which is in charge of development of empathy shrinks if you start to think that other people think less of you because of your status mm -hmm. so the people even most impacted by their status actually have the shrinkage of this key area and what happens is the, the lowering of empathy in general but especially the lowering of empathy towards anyone you think thinks less of you and and if you want to take that to the parlance of the day that contributes to what we call the dissing effect and right now the dissing effect is taken on a whole new world because it becomes even more violent and more pronounced because of that change because you have less empathy towards people you don't think think um, that you were at your status and that's been the biggest changes in poverty and those are overwhelming for education so are these things uh it sounds like that stress and trauma is diet in that also? Does that poverty? Poverty is strange because you don't you don't have anything happen to you from poverty because poverty is not a thing. Mm -hmm. um, poverty is a complex combination of things. Everything is in that. Um, poverty is your environment. Poverty is your diet. Poverty is your clothing. Poverty is your exposure to stimuli. Poverty is how you're parented. Poverty is how you get from point A to point B. Poverty is what you experience, how much you see, how much you learn, how much you have to, to, to round yourselves out. So poverty is a complex configuration of things. And what we know about it, the worse those, those that configuration, the greater the impact on your brain. That's one configuration. The next piece of that is that the the amount of time spent in poverty seems to exacerbate the brain situation. So multi-generational poverty compounds all the issues that I mentioned. The other thing that people need to understand is the part of the brain that I said was so important, their prefrontal cortex, that takes the longest to develop. So it is the most impacted by the poverty, the um, situations that it's raised in. So people, the worse your situation, the greater the prefrontal cortex is impacted because it's not fully developed till double. So you put the prefrontal cortex in a bad situation, you decimate it over time. And the last thing I want to say to you about that stress, you forget trauma for a little while. Um, there are studies now that show that kids in poverty show elevated cortisol stress level at seven months of age. Okay. Come on now. Yeah. You used to, used to think that little babies were at least immune from it if they were raised in a home that showed love and caring. Apparently, poverty is so overwhelming that you still see elevated stress level in 
some of the best homes in poverty because the circumstances are that significant. And so also it, it sounds like uh, the difference in poverty today from the past also is social media, not with the seven-month-old, but with social media, all of those things that you just talked about with you know Puff Daddy's Home or whomever, uh, Jay-Z, and those, you definitely get a chance to see the difference between how you're living versus how someone else is living. I, like you, Horatio, remember saying, I did not know that I, what I did not have until I saw who had less than I did and had more than I did, you know. So when I went off to college, uh, there was the one thing that stuck out to me was there was a, a American literature class we had, and all the students in the class in the class had read <laughs> all of those books, and so this was the second go around for them, and so this was honing and refining. As for me, it was a first read. And you all, we all know the first time is a lot different than as you move on. And so I was at a deficit in that class. You just brought back quite a few of my own uh, thoughts about it. But I've got a question. So how should schools seek to address the impact of poverty uh, it's having on brain development? Well, I think, okay. I don't want people to take this the wrong way, but in, in cases of concentrated poverty, we might need to actually do it differently. And I think that the, the thing about educating everyone exactly the same is a problem. I mean, if you look at, at culture, one of the things we started understanding is Dominant culture creates the pattern in which something is supposed to occur. So basically, our entire educational model has pretty much stayed the same for a long period of time, and it doesn't really work for everyone, kids in poverty especially. So if I have a school with concentrated poverty, and I already have overwhelming data that says there are certain places that are going to be hindered, if I'm really going to help those students, I have to attack those areas. So one, I already told you, language is going to be decimated mm -hmm. um, because of poor exposure to language, because that, that right hemisphere is not developing the right way, because of not having enough stimulation. All the things we need to create language well are in flux. The problem with language is the brain actually changes the way language we age. So between the grades of three to six, if, if it's not corrected, it can be very difficult to correct after that. So we now know, based on good research, that if you use some music in, in to aid language acquisition, you can improve not only language acquisition, but some of the studies are showing changes in the actual structure of the prefrontal cortex increase in size by gray matter and increase in white matter and we are talking flippantly we're talking good use of music in correlation to language a matter of fact in preschooling and early grades if it's taken care of well it can make a significant difference um we also know that movement and language is really critical in these early periods and sometimes 
we adding some degree of sign language to keyword acquisition is another concrete strategy that you can actually put in. So in, in the schools that I'm looking at, you're thinking about music teachers and language teachers working hand in hand in a curriculum that intensely focuses on language. Most of the kids who struggle, auditory processing is hard for discrete sounds of language. They show that music training actually can revive that. Music the movement can revive that, and that's a concrete area. And yes, I will do more language with more different approaches and let some other things go because language is the foundation of everything they're gonna do after that. I already know their hippocampus is gonna be damaged and therefore memory is gonna be hindered. So I will actually build skill build. You need to build memory up. You need to have things that kids come in every single day and improve their memory. Remember, remember you used to play memory games? Yes. And that helped your memory concentration? Well, those things actually do work. So you can come in and colors flash and sequence on the screen, and kids try to put the cards in the right order, numbers flash and sequence, kids write them, and you track how kids' memories are doing. Because if I can remember something, my ability to learn improves because it's not a case where I have it, I leave the class and I lose it. And you see a lot of kids in poverty have that happen. They go to class, they understand it, they come back the next day, poof, it's gone. You have to improve the skill of memory. The other thing you're gonna to have to do is address this issue of emotional control. Um, if you're saying the amygdala is, is hampered and emotional control is bad, instead of sitting around and saying they don't control themselves, they misbehave, they don't control themselves, they misbehave, perhaps you ought to do things to improve emotional control. Mindfulness things are, are out there all over the place. There's some good mindfulness curriculums that help emotional control. Um, teaching people how to control their bodies, their heart rate, their blood rate. You can teach physical things that control physical control. You can help kids learn all these kinds of techniques to improve their emotional control and build that skill set. And the last thing you know is the prefrontal cortex, because of the hampering, means it cannot focus as well. You need to work on improving focus. Nothing can be learned unless you can focus. And if we don't improve the ability to focus, we cannot learn. By the way, it doesn't mean that no focusing is going on. What we know about is what is important to you is where your brain will actually look and focus on. What we see now is that the, the drop in the emphasis on education of kids in poverty is, is contributing to the factor of lack of interest in education as a whole. That means if I'm a teacher working with kids in poverty, one of my jobs now is actually to be a salesperson, to be able to show how is this an interesting thing for you? Because if I don't make that curriculum interesting to you that you want to focus on, I'm going to lose. So I have to improve the skill set of focus, but I also have to approach it in a way that says, this is something you want to learn, and here's the reason why you want to learn it, because I need to win you back, because we no longer poverty where the folks at, at home are saying this, education is a way out, education is a way for you to get better. That used to be a message, right? Right. That message is not there anymore because when you get to second and third and fourth and fifth generation poverty, what happens? And they don't see her to tell their kids, hey, this is a way out for you. They didn't get out. That becomes a huge problem. You just mentioned quite a few things that I see are challenges for our schools and school districts 
right now. So schools in poverty, I work in Metro Detroit. So you know the, the budgets are cut. So when they cut budgets, uh, music teachers and those specials are some of the first things that go. You mentioned movement. Uh, we have studies that say that our boys, and now with this virtual world that we're getting ready to enter in, uh, the, in the fall, movement is not always incorporated as engagement and rich and uh, rigor for our classrooms, for our teachers. Uh, and the last thing, We've gotten away from the memory piece because from what I've read from uh, Juwanza Kanjufu and what I also see in school districts is those curriculums that they that they are purchasing, they're trying to get things the best bang for their buck. It's not necessarily what's right for, for the kids. And some of those things are expectations of the families at home to do. But you're right. There, I was thinking and just having a conversation with my wife the other day about some some stories, Conjunction Junction. I don't know if you remember those uh, Schoolhouse Rock videos. There are some things that the preamble, all of those things played parts. And I memorized those songs, like you said, memory and music. And even when I think about things today, sometimes I go back to some of those things. I, I hearken back. And school districts today are, are now all of a sudden saying that that might not be what's the most important component to, to learning. And I am in total agreement with you as far as children and children in poverty. There are a couple of things that they've got to have as part of their uh, rudimentary learning component of themselves. And that, the access to that information quickly will allow you to learn how to problem solve. If I've got to struggle to get to those things that I could have in my memory bank, then altogether it's going to be a big challenge. In your book, you discuss a new bias that blacks and Hispanics are facing. Can you elaborate on that for our audience? Yeah, um, first of all, let me define what bias is. Bias is a shortcut. brain is very efficient. If something is going to happen with regularity, the brain decides to make sure you don't have to work as hard and it gives you shortcuts. So whenever it is a disproportionate pattern in your environment, the brain will make a shortcut. So for example, let's say if every time you see a paper, you hear pen. After a while you see paper, you think pen. Now you think pen subconsciously, but it's always there. So any pattern means that when you bring up one thing, the subconscious brain automatically for you brings up the other. Now, we have created in America a disproportionate pattern of poverty and blacks and Hispanics of color. Hispanics of color are your new group. Blacks have been there for quite a while. And what you have is this. The association is so common in our society that when we see black or Hispanics of color, what we end up thinking is pretty subconsciously. Here's the biggest problem with that. There is so much overwhelming research on what to expect from people who are poor. We expect people who are poor to have poor educations because they don't do well in school. 
We're expecting poor behavior. We're expecting more mental health issues. We're expecting more substance abuse. We're expecting poor parenting. We're expecting poor jobs. We're expecting poor decision-making with people. There are studies that show laziness at work compared to other folks if you're poor. There are studies that show all of these things and our minds have all these things in the back of our heads that we say, when we think of poor, all of these things come out. Well, we've seen black and poor, black and poor, black and poor, black and poor so long in our world, in, in America, that when we see a black person, we automatically think subconscious poverty. The problem with that is once we subconsciously think something, it comes out some way. Whether it's subtle or overt, it comes out in some way, and that thing produces a lower expectation of productivity. So let's forget a poor black kid right now. Think of a middle-income or affluent black child actually going to a decent school. Well, you have some of your highest cases of reporting of incidents in those schools because the black, black boy is a son of a doctor and a lawyer. He is going to a school and although he has none of the presenting issues, there is treatment like he is a person who is automatically lacking because he's poor. I'll give you a couple of concrete examples that came out of our climate assessments. We do assessments of districts and we assess their entire climates and the, the data comes from the people in the districts. Here's a, here's a couple of clear examples. In one district we were in, one of the things that white students and black students consistently said is, if a black student comes into this district and they were an honors person before coming to the district, people recommend to them that they not do honors classes the first year in and see how they do in this district. However, uh, a couple of the kids were in the interview were saying, well, I was an honors person and I wasn't black. I came in and no one said that to me. And there were two girls that came from the same exact district the same year and one said, I was told maybe I shouldn't. The other one was told, I was told nothing. And that's that expectation, completely subconscious. And I'm sure the person who's making the re recommendation is being considerate, is being kind because she thinks, I don't want this person to fail because there's a subconscious expectation. Another thing that happened in this same school district when we were assessing is, is that students said, if there's an incident in the hallway and the guys who handle the incidents run in down the hall to where they were called and there is a black male standing any place around where the incident occurred, they approach that student first. These were observations of the students, regardless of race or gender. That is a subconscious expectation of certain things. Well, I actually think, if you think of Harvard's study and says the association of blacks to aggression and violence, that's big. And we know the historical context of that. I'm saying the poverty issue is far more severe because it has such global implications because there's so many things we associate with poverty that it crosses into all these different areas. So how do you maintain teacher expectation? How do you, how do you actually overcome so many issues? And because poverty is so 
overwhelming in our culture and the reinforcement of poverty producing so many bad things is constantly reinforced, the chances of teachers escaping that bias is very, very low unless they're educated into how the bias occurs. So at the problem we're seeing right now is that Hispanics of color and blacks coming into school subconsciously are being associated with poverty regardless of socioeconomic situation. Even if you're in poverty, it's still a bad thing. If you're out of poverty, it's a terrible thing, but no, no, across the board, it's a huge thing. If you want to see how it impacts us in our society, there's a study that showed that there's a certain kind of heart attack that if you have um, the symptoms of it, and we prescribe this preventative medicine, your chances of having that heart attack occur is as less than 90% down. So you can eliminate 90% of the issues just by pre-prescribing if you have the symptoms you don't have to worry about prescribing because the regimen doesn't harm you if you don't have the condition. Well, the study showed that when blacks came in having the condition, the symptoms, the number of times they were prescribed this regimen was less than 20%. When they went back to the doctors and they said, why are you doing this? The doctors said, we're not doing anything. Then the doctors gave an economic situation. Well, it's expensive and you know, poverty. So the researchers went back and looked at the hospitals in which people that only affluent go to, and they found that if the blacks went into those hospitals, it was the same ratio. So when they went and took the data back to the doctors, the doctors went, oh my God, there's a bias, because it was completely subconscious. So they just changed the form. What they did was in the form, they said, if these symptoms are there, they have a question, did you offer this medication? And that's how they counteracted the subconscious bias. So what we're trying to tell you is that bias can actually exist in contradiction to your values and your beliefs. So you can be an advocate for kids, you can love kids, you can have be a person who actually wants to do nothing but good things for students and still have a bias that occurs based on our society that will influence your behavior. And the last caution I want to make sure people get is the bias rate is the same for black teachers. Black teachers and as as it is for white, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm so glad you said that. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind as you talked about that bias, I did a, a session here in Detroit with, about uh, teaching African American males and educating, uplifting black boys. And one of the things was we asked uh, the perception. We put different silhouettes of of African American black boys all around, and what they saw or what they could see in them. We always heard basketball player, never did we hear class president. And that's also part of what you're saying, right? It's what you perceive when we walk in the door. That's it's a challenge. That's a barrier that you, you start off with from the beginning before you uh, pick up a number two pencil. Before you answer a question, you have already been placed in a position where the expectations are at a certain level. We've got to definitely, and you're right, it is not just, as my study, I don't have any, I didn't look at the data all the way, but it looked as if Caucasian females and and African-American females 
were the hardest on the, I'm sorry, the African-American men and white women were the hardest on black boys. Black women gave a little bit more leeway. What are your recommendations or what recommendations would you make to schools and districts as they attempt to provide educational services in this new challenging climate? Yeah. We have a really strange capacity in our brains. You know, um, we have in our DNA this capacity that says once we believe something, when our eyes scan the world, we will spot things that support our belief and, and things that contradict what we believe are not consciously missed, subconsciously missed, which makes them likely not to be registered. So I'm trying to make a point that whatever you believe will be reinforced every day that you're around because your brain will automatically spot the things that support your belief and not intentionally, but miss the things that contradict. So our beliefs get stronger. We also have in our DNA a capacity that if we're healthy, we can overcome and adapt very quickly as long as we are willing to make the adaptation, that we're willing to look and think about change. Um, so all that to say is that our perspective starts to predict how our mind thinks and what our brains believe. So we're, we're looking at an uncertain world, makes a lot of people worry. We're looking at change, which lots of people struggle with. And your perspective, your belief, your attitude going into this change is predictive of how well people come out of this. And so if I was a person in a school right now, my, my sermon would be to all the folks in the school is stop bemoaning what we can't do mm -hmm. based on the new situation. Mm -hmm. um, stop looking backwards because it doesn't help. Begin to look forward and act like this. What can we do to become better than what we were in the current circumstance that we are in? Because if you keep on waiting for the past to come back, you're going to do temporary stop gaps, and all your stop gaps are going to be loose and not creative. But if you start thinking about how can we be better, your brain will start helping you. Here's the problem with your perspective. If you sit in a meeting and you have everybody to discuss what's wrong first before you go to solutions, by the time you get to the solutions, the room is quiet. There's a reason for that. If the brain hears nothing but negative possibilities for a certain amount of time, the part of the brain that creates new, wonderful possibilities actually closes. Your perspective becomes the biggest predictor. Your flexibility, your, your ability to adapt becomes the predictor of what you see possible. So we need to sit back and say, let's stop thinking about how to make the old world come back 
quickly. Mm. We have to start saying, how can we make this new world better? Because if we can, what are the possibilities? Let me give you uh, some concrete kind of things. Okay. The brain thinks that things that are repeated repeatedly are important. That's why they spend millions of dollars on commercials. If you watch any TV at all, I can guarantee you that there are certain commercials that come on and you know the commercial by heart, even though you don't care about the, the product at all. That's because your brain elevates to importance things that are said repeatedly. It also should be a caution to people that people repeating negative messages make that message raised to importance also, subconsciously, but it still influences you. So, I'm a teacher. I know kids are going to be watching a lesson, and I know the lesson gets automatically taped now. Well, I have some advantages, right? There are, there are foundational points in every curriculum that kids have to know really quickly for them to do the advanced concepts. Well, I'm going to make a bunch of two-minute commercials or 60-second commercials on all the points as we're building along the year, and I'm going to have them, and I'm going to have them done creatively and make these little commercials, and I'm going to talk to every single parent. I'm going to say we're going to have these commercials that come on the device, and here's what we want you to do. Every morning when your kid gets up, have them watch the ones that have been picked out for them that day. Every night they go to bed, have them watch it again. So now I have key points in my lesson, repeated vision, because I'm partnering with parents, and guess what I'm going to get if I can get them to actually do that? Passive learning, because the brain is going to hear it, and even if the kid goes down and hears, I'm tired of hearing this and watching it again, it's boring, boring, boring. But if he keeps on watching it, you know what's going to happen? He's going to go to the verbatim. And you know, there, there are possibilities out there. There are lots of possibilities. And I think we keep on thinking about what we can't have. You, you know, these sessions are recorded. We can we go back and look at things. We can start to think about, okay, we have access to videos right now that we can plug into our wonderful things. We can have instantaneous mandated response. How about that? Because guess what? We're supposed to be constantly checking kids' comprehension of what we're saying. Well, you have a chat box. Every, you can, every kid's got to put in their name. Every kid can constantly have to respond, and their score per day actually starts to give you an implication of, one, are they paying attention to how much they're learning, what they're learning? Three, being able to come back and say, this is the level of focus we're seeing from your child. You have that constantly because I poll constantly and I can have the whole class see the poll results in aggregate without embarrassing anybody. I can constantly check for assessment of learning in a cool way where everybody has to participate in a constant level. I have that now because that's hard to do in a class, isn't it? I can do that better right now than I could do in class mm. because of how I structure it. Your limitations right now are your limitations of your mind. And yes, there are certain things I cannot do right now when I'm training. But guess what? I don't go, well, I can't do that. Throw it away. What I'm doing right now as I revamp things because I'm doing more trainings this way, I'm trying to figure out how can I get this across 
in this platform in an effective way where people are engaged. And instead of thinking about what I can't do, my mind is thinking about what I can do. That is a perspective that we are built in our DNA to do and that we start to believe and, and, and stop bemoaning the past because that's a key thing. You have a choice. You can embrace or regret. If you embrace, there's a thing called synthetic happiness and synthetic happiness says, you synthetic happiness is something you make. It says, when I accept the change, the moment I accept it and start to look for possibilities, I gain a level of contentment. It actually is concrete. It's not putting the best foot forward. It's not making the best out of a bad situation. Your brain will change in levels of contentment. My contentment is my own. It's the same message that we learned before. 90% of our disposition is based on our internal condition, not on what's happening around us. So the message is clear. I should embrace what I'm doing now. I should figure out ways to do better. Who knows, there may be some things that will actually make us better in the long run. I should not be looking constantly backwards to where we go back to where we went before. We may go back, we may not go back. But if we plan to be the best we can right now and stop thinking the old model is the only thing we can do, we will not seize this day. And I think for the good, for the good of students, for the good of the staff, for the good of the world that we're living in, we have to get to the place where we say, hey, we can do this. We can do it creatively. We can maybe partner more with parents because we know they're home. <laughs> we, can do, we can do a lot of things better. And if we accentuate the things we can do better, we may miss the things we can't do as well less. And I think that's the message for this new world that we live in for schools because if you're forcing yourself to go back to a model and, and it ends up backfiring, too quickly and things end up doing a situation where you acted too quickly because you didn't want to face this brand new world, the regrets are going to be overwhelming. But if we make the best out of this, I think the possibilities are endless because that's what we're built to do. We're we humans and in our DNA, we are overcomers. And I think we need to embrace our DNA and, and actually get better at what we're supposed to be doing right now, regardless of circumstances. So it sounds like you've had quite a few positive af affirmations in your life. I'm going to ask, do those, did those come from your parents? Did they come from school? Are there some books that inspired you? I, I, as I listen to you, I, I think so many things, uh, and I know you have a, a wide array of things that you've done in your past, but it sounds like you could potentially be a marriage counselor. You could be a pastor, a minister, <laughs> quite a few things, great things, but Tell me a little bit about, uh, was there, is, did all of this inspiration come from your parents? Do you have some, some books or, or, or anything that uh, helped you make this trajectory to where you are today? Um, I, I, everyone, well, as long as you live in a home, whether good or bad, you're influenced by your parents. So I, like everybody else, am highly influenced by my mother. Um, Some of the other key people in my life were teachers, actually, and um, and, and and teachers that didn't let me slide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they, they like forced me to 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 do better and to 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 actually apply myself in a, a 
very different way. Um, I went to a very um, rigorous high school, and I was in a high school that by the time I graduated high school, college was boring because it was so easy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the nature of, of good education, and good education exposes you to all those things that you talked about reading when you went to college. It took years before I read a book in college that I did not read in high school. Mm -hmm. That's 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 a blessing, mm -hmm. and it, it wasn't a blessing initially because <laughs> I didn't come from a systems that had prepared me for that kind of education. It was hard because it was different, but I stayed in, and I stayed in with help. And and anybody who tells you they got here on their own is a fool mm -hmm. because. You're discounting the people that that were there in your life. Um, as as far as as far as literature and things like that, I've had quite a few that have shaped um, a lot of my thinking. Um, the the first the, the first book that I actually started thinking about um, how policy influences us was um, Tally's Corner, and, and because, let's take a, a phrase that I'm, one of the things that I was concerned about in my, my new book is what is called unintended consequences. Um, you can have all the right intentions, and if you don't know what's really going on and how to really address it, you run out to do something, and years later you find out unintended consequences. And um, Callie's Corner has talked about social welfare system and how the social welfare system actually undermined the presence of men in the home and mm -hmm. actually influenced more black men to be out of the home and to contribute to unwed mothers because the social welfare system was designed for single mothers and your your income was based on the number of children that's an unintended consequence mm -hmm. and that's why I, I preach right now to um school districts when they want to talk about let's address this issue of culture and diversity and race i caution them to say think about it through neuroscience um, forget the empirical stuff forget all this emotional stuff um, I'm going to fall on the wrong side of this for a lot of folks. To get the conversations early, because conversations don't change things. Um, if conversations change things, then every kid that went into therapy would be healed. Mm. Conversations can be beneficial. But conversations do not change. What changes things is actions. And it has to be actions people are willing to make. And the only actions people are willing to make are the actions that people are convinced that there are good actions to take. So that means a program has to explain to people why this is really true and then encourage them to be so motivated to do it because they know it's the right thing to do. Um, I find a lot of the programs have very good intentions but don't understand the brain very well. So let me give you an example. You know, if I talk to you about differences right off the bat, me and you sit down and we talk about how different 
I am from you, your amygdala, your emotional brain becomes agitated. So by the time the conversation is done, you are emotionally overwhelmed towards one emotion or another, and that reduces your ability to logically think about it. So here's what I find a lot of people want to sit down on one side of the equation and do. Let's talk about how different my experience is, is from yours. That sounds good at the, at the, on the table, but it always produces wrong outcomes. And every time we've studied it, any district that took that approach, we went in there and talked to every single teacher in the district. And most of the teachers thought it was worse after the mm. program than it was before the program. That's because they made the program an emotional contention. But they didn't intend to do that. They thought they were improving things. Well, you can discuss differences, but the amygdala requires you first to do what? Find commonalities. If we and you can find commonalities, guess what? After that, we can discuss differences because it allows us to be calm. And then this part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, is talking about it. When we start out with our issues and our differences, the amygdala is the only thing that's activated and the emotional brain is not designed to help us reach warm, logical, calm conclusions. It's gonna produce an emotion, and emotions produce actions, and most of the times the actions are not with good thought, and the outcome tends to be negative. So I sell districts, if you wanna understand implicit bias, do it from a level of neuroscience, because it helps us all understand how it occurs, if you don't know how it occurs, you can't address it. And I'll tell you another thing. Let's say race. Your brain notices race at 30 milliseconds. There are a thousand milliseconds in a second. At 30 milliseconds, you notice race. Everybody in the world, that's what they notice. Race, 30 milliseconds. You haven't even known when you noticed race. At 30 milliseconds, you're not conscious of what you saw. You don't even know you saw it, by the way. All the things about that person, face, hands, posture, gestures, that your brain is, has a pre-attentional system to monitor, drops in monitoring if the race is different, which reduces your ability to actually look at the person. Most people don't even know that occurred. So how are you gonna fix what you don't know? But what we do know is if you start to understand how the brain processes, you can start to identify, oh, I just saw what happened. Because you know, this is how the, what the brain is looking for. This is how the brain does this. this. And once you do that, you can become sensitive to things that you have never been sensitive to. Because right now, if you go about it the way people are going to go about it, lots of people are going to think the message we're talking about is for what? Someone else, because that's not their value. Hmm. That's not their belief. And they don't think that's their behavior. Well, well guess what? It's most of our values, it's against most of our values, it's against most of our beliefs, but it is what most of us do. And that is the problem. And, and we're trying to change actions, and that means we have to put in other actions. And we can't do that with people being emotional about the message. We can do that with people understanding the message, accepting the message, and accepting the new action we have to do. And if we don't go about it smartly, we're gonna be back here 10 years from now, 20 years from now, discussing the same old thing. And, and by the way, we've been here more than a minute. 
This is mm -hmm. not the first time we've had this discussion about race and culture, is it? No, it's not. We've, we've had upheavals, and we've had discussions, and we've had programs. And guess what they've done? Look at the data. Is it better right now? No. It's not better statistically. But we keep on confusing some things. Our biggest issue is, is the association, the socioeconomics. Um, you know the biggest gap in education right now is the socioeconomic gap? There, why don't we know that? Because we keep on looking at black students. Why? Because there's so much disproportionate number of black students in poverty. But, you know, there's a middle class. There's a black middle class. Mm -hmm. There's a full of blacks. They don't fall into the demographics. They're doing fine. They're out there being doctors and lawyers. We, we are missing that possibilities, but the, the problem with by separating it so the way we're doing and making it all about just race instead of socioeconomic issues is this. Remember what you were saying? Kids need to be able to see folk who look like them, who achieve more. Yes. We have a disconnect. And instead of basketball player, rap star, and these are the possibilities, there there are blacks who are doing all the things in this society that black kids in poverty are not even aware of because of the way we're going about it. Um, we got famous black attorneys, we have famous black doctors, we have famous black lawyers, we have famous black engineers, we have famous black people doing all the different functions in our society. Why don't we know? Because we're focused on only certain ones because that's what our brain is thinking that they're supposed to be doing. And we have kids not even aware of it. I'll give you a story that actually breaks my heart. I go to a lot of schools in the course of every year. And if you see me on a regular day, you know every time I go any place to do work, I'm in a suit. Mm -hmm. I walk into a predominantly black um, Title I school for the last um, five years, I had people when Obama was in office, during his entire time and shortly after that, I had little black boys and girls running out to me and asking me if I was the president. Why? Because I had a suit on? Mm -hmm. And so we, we, we've, we've, increased the, we've increased the roles now. You can be a rap star. A basketball player for the president. Guess what the odds are? Still pretty low. Very low. If we add in doctor, lawyer, mechanic, cook, we add everything out there, then you have the possibilities. And I don't think kids in, in, in poverty see the possibility. Know it's out there because we have the message being this. And, and that's our fault. That's our fault. We haven't done the things that are required for people to see the future and the possibilities better. And we have disconnected the action from the group. Because you and I, we both grew up poor. You know what being poor is like. Once you escape poverty, you don't, you can't go back. Right. Because we created a situation where if you have escaped, they don't want to look at you the same way. How about that? Right. That's disturbing. <laughs> right. That's disturbing. We need to be representing the possibilities, not separated and talking about what goes on back there. I totally agree. I I think 
back in my time in the school, uh, the kids just had no idea of all of the wide array of things that we have been doing and are doing very well. Uh, their, their lives are so segregated from uh, what we do. And you're right, we don't, we don't go back, uh, not nearly at the clip to help and bring back some others so that they can see all of the possibilities. I took a group of kids to, uh, we had a black college tour. They were eighth graders. And um, because my students on the east side of Detroit, uh, they hadn't even had an opportunity to go outside of their own five-mile radius of, of their homes. So there's some things in east, east, east side of Detroit is basically like downtown. So there are a lot of things that are going on that they should, in theory, be able to walk to see. And they, were, they, didn't, they hadn't had a chance to do that. I took those kids down to that black college. And kids, my kids saw, my students saw other kids that looked like them on their way to the library with backpacks on, with fraternity letters and letterman jackets and the things that I thought would be the most profound for them wasn't even remotely close. It was the idea, like the air just seemed to be crisper, fresher, cleaner. And they got a chance to see, they envisioned themselves with those backpacks on. And so that it's like we have detached them from these possibilities by not including, not saying. I, I also say it uh, in our history books. I really wish we would have done a better job to include Lewis Latimer right next to uh, Thomas Edison. Uh, for all of, of Americans to see that those successes are successes of collaboration. There were black and white people working together. There were black scientists many, many moons ago. We ought not. So you said the, the kid looked at you and saw Barack Obama. But if it were Michael Jordan, they would know exactly who Michael Jordan is. And Michael Jordan had not played in a long time. So that's like a detachment. You, you know what I mean? So it's they're, they're looking at you affectionately because you have on a suit. It's not something that they see in their neighborhood. You must be, yeah. <laughs> you know. Michael Jordan. Huh? Right. And watch Michael Jordan. But that's, that's an expectation, yeah. Right. And, and that's a sad thing. But the reality is... Michael can, there's room for Michael. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Michael needs to be one example, not the example. There's, there's room for Michael. Michael can be on that, that, that wall, but he's got to be one of many rather than one of a few. And, and I think we have, we have to change that because I think we've gotten ourselves deluded because there are fathers who believe that their son can be this or this rather than this, this or that. Um, and I think we, we need to take responsibility for it. We need to change the curriculum. We need to show what, how things are integrated and were integrated in achievement and let people see possibilities and how they've learned and, and stop building things 
against how the brain actually operates. I think that's one of the saddest things to me that I see today is that we're, we're to a place where everybody is applying neuroscience at a high level. Um, we talk to advertising firms, they're applying neuroscience. We're talking to business people, they're applying neuroscience. And I think we as educators who actually are operating on the brain every day, we're slow to the party. Mm-hmm. And, and we're slow to the party because education changes so slow. And I think one of the things we have here is an opportunity to reevaluate education. And I always think about possibilities out of things, and out of crisis can come wonderful things. Why not? Let's reevaluate. Let's let's change it up some. Let's see what happens. And out of possibilities, out of change, out of crisis can come amazing things. So I'm not looking back, and I'm not worried about past. I'm, I'm thinking. Let's seize what we have today, and let's see how things play out. But um, I'm going to keep on uh, do what I can and whatever mediums that they bring me to, and I'm going to try to improve how I engage in those mediums because I have to. Because I did, I do a lot of things when I I train people live that are highly interactive, and. I am trying to figure out how do I infuse that here, and it may look different, smell different, and taste different, but it's going to be what I'm going to be doing, and, and I'm going to find a way to do it better. And every time I do get on these things and, and do it, I'm trying to add because my brain is not able to think about another possibility, and I think that's where I'm at. And just like I told you, my life's the same. And I told you that from the very beginning, it's same because that's how I wake up. I wake up with a perspective that says there are possibilities. I am not focused on the issues. I'm not Pollyanna. I know what the issues are. I know they're severe. And I, and when push comes to shove, I face many of those issues. Um, and But how I face them is what I have full control over. And I want to face them in a way that keeps my mind able to think of solutions and keep my prefrontal cortex in control. And in a top-down system, you have to be calm. brain doesn't work. I truly appreciate your message. Uh, I'm going to personally work hard to get you back in the state of Michigan. I think there's quite a bit in your message that uh, could be lifted by our districts. Uh, we are uh, We have some challenges like everyone else, but I love your affirming word, and so I'd like for you to keep Keep up the good work. Uh, before I let you go, I want to say, is there a precursor? Is there something in your wide catalog that my audience should read before they get to the poverty problem? Um, my last book is still still hot. The um, Revolution is still selling really well. Um, it's a good thing. It talks about instruction. It talks about how, how brain development is, is changing and um, how kids are changing and how the brain is changing based on our new world. Um, I, I, I think the book is powerful for this one single reason. After it was written, it was sent out to a bunch of folk and the folk that read the book did this. They changed what they were doing and they went a different way. Uh, I had one superintendent that actually had her whole district plan and everybody had gone and she like put the brakes on 
day we did it, she even contacted me and said, hey, this is what happened. It changed something in me, and they went a different direction. And so when, when people respond that way to something that's in print, it shows you there may be something in it. And, and that's where I learned that maybe it was something more than just words. Because when people do actions, that means words had enough in them to change things. So go read that and join the um, poverty problem when it comes out at, um, in spring. And here's what I think about the poverty problem. The poverty problem was written for a time like this. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I hope to see you in the future. Take care. Take care. Mm, bye-bye. Bye.